Good morning, Discovery Church. How is everybody this morning? Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers out there. It is a beautiful morning. I'm going to just kind of gauge in how much time I have here in the shade here, see if I can preach quick enough to stay in the shade this morning and avoid another snarky comment by Jake for preaching for 45 minutes. I'm very sensitive to those kind of things, Jake. I, uh, it's good to be here again this morning. Always good to be here. Um, stepping in again under unfortunate, um, difficult circumstances. And, uh, you know, one of my uh, secret um, bucket list items in life has always been to wear a hat when I'm preaching at a church. And uh, today I get to do that, but I do that uh, just to stand in solidarity with Pastor Paul this morning. And uh, I just want to honor you, Pastor Paul. It's, uh, you're just a man of God, and your enduring trust in the faithfulness of God is inspiring. So we honor you. And it's, uh, it's always a little bit, yeah, it's always a little bit uh, intimidating to to preach in front of the pastor, so I don't get to pull off anything this morning. <clears throat> so uh, you can fact check me this morning, Pastor Paul. You can feel free. I defer to you. You may stand up and heckle and correct. I defer to your leadership in this church. This is your church, and I am here under your authority. <clears throat> so I'm. I. Uh, call this sermon this morning, The Holy Spirit and the Beloved Community, the prequel. The prequel, because if you were here two weeks ago, I did a sermon uh, called The Holy Spirit and the Beloved Community based on Ephesians chapter 3. And as I was uh, preparing for that, I didn't know that I'd be here this week, two weeks later. And uh, had I known that, I probably would have reversed these two. And done this one first, and then brought in Ephesians 3 afterward. But we're going to do what we call the prequel this morning, looking at Acts chapter 2. Again, just to give you a little bit of context of why we're looking at what I call the Holy Spirit and the beloved community. When Pastor Paul asked me to preach uh, many weeks ago, um, uh, to step in a couple of weeks ago, I, I just asked, what are the... You know, what are the themes? What's God doing in your church right now? And, and Pastor Paul had mentioned that there's these two sort of revolving themes here at Discovery, uh, one being the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and the second being how to be a welcoming community, a welcoming especially to those on the margins, those in struggle, um, and and as I thought about that, I was, I was pretty excited to bring those two together because those two, the, the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit and community in Scripture are linked. They're linked. The person, the, work of the, the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit and the creation of community, what I call beloved community, are linked. And we're going to see that. Um, specifically in the passage this morning. And again, just to give you a little bit of context why I use the term beloved community, that's a term that was popularized 
by Dr. Martin Luther King uh, back in the 60s in his fight for racial justice uh, in this country. And he, he popularized, he did not coin this term, but he popularized this term, the beloved community. And for Dr. King, the beloved community was not just a social construct, but it was a community, a world in which oppression not only was it outlawed, but it simply was not allowed. And it wasn't allowed because of legislation, but it, was a, it wasn't allowed because the hearts of man had been changed by the love of, and you can read this in Dr. King's writings, and I would encourage you as we come up on Juneteenth celebration, which is such an important celebration in the history of our country, you can read this in Dr. King's writings. Uh, he was not just a social thought leader. He was a man of God who believed that to achieve the ends of racial reconciliation and shalom in our country, our hearts, the, the heart of man needed to be changed by the love of God. And in, in, and in Dr. King's, uh, in his efforts, he believed in this idea where the love of God changed the hearts of man to such a degree that oppression simply wasn't allowed in that community. And so when I talk about the beloved community, that's the idea that we're talking about. It's not just social construct, but a community in which our hearts are changed in such a manner that we love one another selflessly and sacrificially. And a community where all people, all men, all women, from all walks of life, all abilities are welcomed into a beloved community. And when you look in Scripture, this can only be done through the work of the Holy Spirit. And what you find is it is done. When you see the Holy Spirit moving through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, this is one of the results, is beloved community. And so we're going to look at that this morning in Acts chapter 2. As I've preached a few times here, uh, you've probably noticed I've developed a model of preaching over the last uh, number of years where uh, I like to engage Scripture together. So we're going to do that in a few moments. I'm going to put this in context a little bit. But I've developed this model of preaching where I like to read Scripture and engage it together. One of the reasons I, I so value doing this is when we engage Scripture together, we learn more about the character of God through His Word together than if I just stand up here and tell you what I think about Scripture. I'll give you an example. Last uh, Two weeks ago, we were looking at Ephesians chapter 3. We did some engagement together, and one of you, I don't even remember who, made this observation when you look in Ephesians 3, what we were looking at two weeks ago, how the language goes from the Lord did, the Lord did, the Lord did, to now you. And there's a change in language, essentially, because of what the Lord did, now I'm praying this for you. And that stuck with me. And, and I, every time I do this, in this model of Bible engagement, I'm blessed and I receive things out of it. And I think as we engage the Word of God together, we learn more about the character of God. So we're going to do that uh, for a few moments this morning in Acts chapter 2. 
which I think is probably a familiar passage to many of us. Uh, it is following the day of Pentecost. But I want to put this in context a little bit because I think it's always important to read Scripture in context. And so the context of Ephesians or of Acts chapter 2, what we're going to read is following the day of Pentecost. Now the day of Pentecost, what happened at the day of Pentecost? What's that? The Holy Spirit was invented. He showed up. Did he show up at Pentecost? He did. Was that the first time he showed up? Not the first time the Holy Spirit shows up in Scripture. So the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, those early apostles are in Jerusalem. Now, again, one of the important things with, with Pentecost, and this is going to go into what we're going to look at this morning, Pentecost was, a, was an annual Jewish festival. You, you all know this, I'm certain. It was an annual Jewish festival, one of the three pilgrimage festivals. Pentecost, 50 days, Penta, 50 days after Passover. One of the pilgrimage festivals where Jews from all over the nation, or all over the world, because Jews had been dispersed. You read this in the Old Testament. Now Jews are all over the world at this time, but three times a year, Jews from all over the world would gather back in Jerusalem for these festivals. Pentecost is one of those. Pentecost, what, do you, what did the Jews celebrate at Pentecost? Do we know this? What was the celebration of Pentecost? It was the giving of the law. That was the, so, so Jews would come back and the celebration of Pentecost was the giving of the law. Now, what does that mean? That's a, uh, a throwback to Exodus chapter 19. If you know the journey of Israel, they're released from slavery in Egypt. They journey into the desert. They gather at Mount Sinai. Now, this is important because there are some very strong connections between what happens at Mount Sinai and what happens in the day of Pentecost. And, and we need to see these connections to, I think, to really understand the importance of what's happening at Pentecost. See, in Exodus chapter 19, Israel comes out. They go into the desert. They come to Mount Sinai. They gather around the mountain. God appears on the mountain in fire and smoke. There's a loud sound. And then following that, God gives them the law. Now, when you're reading Acts chapter 2, there are some very strong connections here. When you think about the Holy Spirit coming, what happens? God comes down in the Spirit in fire, and there's this loud sound of a wind, reminiscent of Exodus chapter 19, it's also, I think this is compelling and this is debatable, but I think it's a compelling and plausible idea that Pentecost, I think is plausible, happens not in the upper room, but at the temple. Why do we believe that? Well, it's that what, what time is it when the Holy Spirit comes? 
It's 9 o'clock in the morning. What's important about 9 o'clock in the morning? That's the hour of prayer. That's when the Jews would have gathered at the temple on the day of Pentecost to celebrate the giving of the law. Back in Exodus chapter 19, these are good Jewish men and women that likely would have been at the temple at the hour of prayer celebrating the giving of the law. And so this is what happens in Acts chapter 19 as they gather at the mountain, Mount Zion, at the hill, at the house, to celebrate the giving of the law. The Spirit comes and puts the law in people's hearts. Now, what's important about the law? Again, something that we need to understand about the law is the law isn't what we tend to think about in our context as simply rules. The law for the Jewish community wasn't just rules to follow. Rather, it was the covenant. It was the, it was the wedding vows. It was the time when God married Israel as his bride. It's where he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. So it's this covenant between God and Israel and built into the law is this social code. Built into the law just isn't individual responsibility, but it's a social code. And part of the purpose of the law, again, is God creating a people. God creating a people where he was in their midst, they were together, they cared for one another, and in doing so, they would show the nations the character of God through the community. So this is the context of Acts chapter 2. Jews from all over the world are gathered at the mountain, at the mount, at the house, at the temple to celebrate the giving of the law. The Spirit comes. They start speaking in tongues. There's also this very strong connection that we need to see here. How many are saved at the day of Pentecost? 3,000. Now think about this for a moment. At Mount Sinai, there's this other thing that happens. You, you may remember the, uh, the golden calf, right? So Israel very quickly forgets the covenant, and they start worshiping a golden calf. And then God comes down, and there's judgment. How many people die as a result of the rebellion of the golden calf? 3,000. So 3,000 die as a result of the rebellion of the golden calf. At Pentecost, what happens after the Spirit comes, Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says the people are cut to the heart. They repent. They return to God. And 3,000 are saved. So I just highlight that because there's some very compelling and strong connections that we need to see in this story to really comprehend, I think, what this story is telling us. 
Now, I also want to just make this comment as we read, and we're going to read this in just a moment. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. When I read this, I read this as I, I think the way narrative is meant to be read primarily in Scripture. What I mean by that is I read this as descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? I think that Luke wrote this for us to read as a description of what happened at Pentecost and the result of Pentecost, not as a prescription for us today in the American church. I want to just make that clear and that distinction because we often tend to read passages like this as a prescription to say, if we do this, then this result will happen. And we'll use this as a prescription of how, and I'll often hear people say this, we want to do the Acts 2 church. And then they'll look at what we're going to read today, and they'll try to recreate circumstances based on a perceived prescription of what they think is happening here when I think the way this is meant to be read is simply as a description, a description for us to read, to analyze, to interpret, and from that position to be able to look at what does this then mean for us today. Does that make sense? Having the correct starting point, and the starting point, I think, has to be what did the author mean originally to that original audience. And again, I think this is a description, not a prescription. And if we read it from there, I think there's some things we can gain for today. So let me read this in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to, again, follow a similar model of what I've done in the past. And I wanted to, I'm going to read this, um, I'm actually going to read this two times. I just find that sometimes when you read it two times, first time maybe something will stick out, and then you read it again, and that thing just kind of solidifies in some ways. So I'm going to read this two times, and then I'm going to just ask for some observations. What do you hear? What do you see? What sticks out to you? So Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It says, they. Now let me pause there for a second. They. Again, it's very important that we understand when you read things like this, they. Who, who is he talking about here? Before we even think about who he's talking to, who's he talking about? Who's the they? Well, you read in context, they sometimes is the 12 disciples. Sometimes it is the Pharisees. Sometimes it is uh, the crowds. So who is the they there? I think in context, it is plausible to believe that the they there are these new believers, not just the apostles, but these new believers just before this. It says 3,000 were added to their number, and then it says they. So I think they is referring to the, these new, this new group of followers of Jesus. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let me read that one more time. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All right, what did you hear? Give me just a couple of observations. What things, what words, phrases, ideas, what stuck out to you? What's that? Fellowship. Okay? They devoted themselves to the teaching and to fellowship. Interesting. What else? Devoted. That's an interesting word in there. They devoted themselves to these things. They prayed together. It says, they prayed together, and you said every day, which is uh, verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So another reason I think it's plausible to believe that Pentecost happened at the temple because they met every day at the temple. What else? What what did you what did you observe in this? They redistributed their wealth. Interesting. Interesting choice of word, redistributed. It's great. I love it. Enjoying the favor of all people. That's re- that's a really yeah that's an interesting observation when you think about the persecution that happens soon after this. It's a very interesting piece that, to be honest with you, I don't know exactly what to do with. In our context, yeah, but that's what happened. That's a great observation. Any other observations? That everything in common. So that's an observation. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute because there's a second piece to this. 
They had everything in common. Yeah, interesting. Somebody else had an observation. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so there was a beloved, it's a description of a beloved community. So one of the things I like to do is, after we make some observations, is ask some good questions. And I, I find it very helpful to ask good questions of Scripture, not to come to Scripture with the answers and then use Scripture to support answers, but to ask good questions and let those questions form our answers. So, Julie, there seemed to be a question behind. You just had a question. There's just a bit of a pondering with the have everything in common. Maybe the question was, what does that even mean? What does that look like? What would it look like to have everything in common? Interesting. Any other questions that would come up as you read this and think about this? Yeah, so the, the question is, how can they meet every day, regardless of what you do with the idea of Pentecost, the day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and upper, I don't actually care. I just think it's kind of an interesting thing to, uh, to ponder. But what it does say clearly is they continue to meet daily in the temple. So the question is, how could they do that when Jesus had been killed and it's probably reasonable to believe that somebody's going to try to squash this movement. And yet they're gathering publicly in the temple daily. That's a great question. How, how did that happen? A lot of things we could talk about with that. How long did it last? When you say it... Yeah, how long did it, how long did this community last? It's a great question. Uh, we know just three chapters later, it starts to fall apart. That's what we know, is that just three chapters later, it starts to fall apart. Any other questions that you might have when you think about this? Isn't that interesting? The Lord, what does that mean? When, especially in the context of so many quote-unquote church growth models, and how do you, add, how do you grow your church? Uh, which typically means numbers. And this says the Lord added to their numbers. What does that mean? Yeah. Any other questions? You got a question. Yeah. 
Uh oh. <laughs> the Bakers. You know, one of the um, interesting things that I, and I don't, I'll be honest with you, this is an observation and a question that I don't know fully what to do with, but I'll just make this observation for your further pondering and, and, and discussion. As I, you know, spent the last couple of weeks thinking about this, praying about it, studying it, reading it, one of the things that stuck out to me is this idea of the Holy Spirit being poured out on a community. And I think about, you know, I've, I've heard, um, I've read, I've heard, I've I've taught, um, and, and rightly, this idea, the, the difference between how the Holy Spirit interacted with people before and after uh, Pentecost. And, and typically, and, and there's some really great observations, you, you see the Holy Spirit uh, empowering people before Pentecost. You see this uh, with David. You see this with Samuel. You see this with Elijah, with Elisha. So you see this with prophets. You see this happening. And the way that I've often thought about this was the difference is not it is largely on scope and scale. Meaning before the before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon individuals, but then after it was more available. It was available to everyone. But still thought of through an individual lens. And the thing that I've found, again, I don't know, you, I'm just going to put this out there and let you kind of de- ponder this. After Pentecost, from everything I could find, the, the instances of the Holy Spirit coming was always on communities. It was always on communities. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, you look in Acts chapter 19, the Holy Spirit coming on the Ephesian church. The Holy Spirit always coming on communities. I don't, I can't think of, and I didn't find any reference to the Holy Spirit coming on an individual. Now, I'm not, I, hear me, I'm not saying this doesn't happen. I'm just saying the emphasis in the, after Pentecost is the Spirit coming on a community. And what happens in that community as the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon that community. So I want to just look, I want to make a couple of observations. One of the things that stuck out to me, as was noted here, is this word devoted. They devoted themselves. Think about that word for a moment. They devoted. And then think about your own life, and what are you devoted to? I think I'm devoted to my wife. I'm devoted to my kids. I'm devoted to our ministry. Think about these, what am I devoted to? This is, this is not just interested in. This is not just a hobby. This is not something that just they did when they had time for. Devoted implies that they reoriented their schedules for this. They reoriented their finances for this. That this reshaped 
the very fabric of their life. They devoted themselves to some things. And so I look at what did they devote themselves to? Well, what's the first thing they devoted themselves to? What's the first thing they devoted themselves to? The apostles' teachings. Now, what are the apostles' teachings? I think it is uh, reasonable to assume that what they're talking about there is the apostles' teachings about Jesus the Messiah. The apostles were teaching about Jesus the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament law through Jesus the Messiah and salvation that is offered both to individuals and to communities through Jesus the Messiah. So I think, what does it mean to be devoted to the apostles' teachings? Well, what are the apostles' teachings? Today, here's the apostles' teachings. And I just think, what would it mean to be devoted today to the apostles' teachings? There are some very um, concerning trends that are very well documented about the declining value of the scriptures today, not only in our country, but in the life of the church. And you can do a very quick Google search to find very reliable data. Uh, in uh, 2022, LifeWay did uh, a, uh, a survey, did some research, found that these are Christians, 73% in their survey. Now, I can't, I, can't tell you, now I can't tell you exactly who was involved in the survey, but their findings, 73% believe that Jesus was created by God. 73% of Christians believe Jesus created by God. 58% uh, believe that various forms of worship now, I mean, outside of the Christian religion, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, valid forms of worship before God. 58% in the church. Uh, 55% believe the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a person. Not a, not a person of the Trinity. This is in the church. 2020 Gallup poll showed that an increasing number of Christians, nearly 20%, believe that the Bible is just a series of fables. These are, this is in the church. These are Christians. 2021 Barna poll found similar results. There is a decreasing value of the authority of the Scriptures in the life of the church. And more and more, what I'm seeing, um, even at... Uh, Anecdotally, and I, I mentor over at GRTS, I see this with graduate-level seminary students, that the scriptures are more and more becoming subject to our experience and our perceptions. So more and more what I'm finding and what the data is showing is that people are interpreting and applying Scripture 
based on the lens of our experience, our relationships, and our emotions. Rather than letting the scriptures interpret our experience, our relationships, and our emotions. I just think about they were devoted to, they reoriented their lives, they were submitted to. And I want to encourage, and I, I uh, just reference Pastor Paul always every time I'm here under his teaching, so appreciative of his devotion not only to the Word of God, but to preaching the Word of God. And I want to just encourage you as a church to continue to be devoted. And I, it's more important than ever that as followers of Jesus, we be devoted to the authority of Scripture in our lives. In Hebrews 12, it says that the Scriptures are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide, to, to pierce to the division of soul and spirit, discerning the hearts and thoughts of men. There's a lot of questions right now about some, some core Christian doctrines, and, and I fear that people are, are coming to conclusions, again, based on, on preference, br- based on relationships, based on experiences, and not letting the Word of God being our foundation and our authority. And I want to just encourage you to be devoted to the Word of God. They were devoted to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. I found this one to be compelling. Somebody said fellowship. They were devoted to fellowship. Think about that for a moment. They were devoted to the fellowship. Alicia and I have... uh, just had this joy in our life over the last year or so of building a friendship with some Amish friends down in Indiana. It's just been such a joyful relationship for us uh, and, and, and um, a tricky one because they're Amish and they're in Indiana. And so to see them, we've got to travel two hours north or south. And, um, but one of the things, you know, I think I've always assumed about the Amish community that it was based on restriction things that they can and cannot do. What I've found in the Amish community is that their way of life isn't rooted in restriction. It's based on centering family, church, and community and eliminating all distractions that would hinder them from centering church, family, and community. The thing that I found interesting is their model for church is geographic. Now, why is that important? Because your church is simply dependent on where you live. In the Amish community, you don't get to choose what church you go to. And as a matter of fact, in the Amish community, like not being a part of a church is not, like you can't, you can't be Amish without being part of the church. It's just, you, those two don't work. Like you can't, it just doesn't, it just it's hard to describe, like, right? Like today, Christians, like, don't go to church, but they're still Christians. In the Amish community, faith, church, community, it's all integrated. You can't be Amish without going to church, and you don't choose your church. You're just committed to the church that you happen to be a part of. And I've been so blessed by that concept 
where our Amish friends will say, you know, some preaching's better than others and some singing's better than others. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because this is my community and I'm devoted to this community. And I'm devoted to fellowshipping with this community. It doesn't matter even if I like everybody. This is just the community that I'm devoted to. I find that compelling that they were devoted to the fellowship. Our team right now at Bridge Street Ministries is the most diverse team we've ever had. Uh, 50% of our people, our, our team are people of color. Uh, we have a very diverse age range, men and women, and it is an absolute honor and thrill to be a part of. And I can tell you it's a very healthy team. And one of the reasons it's very healthy is that as a team, we spend time fellowshipping every day. So every day, if you would come into our office, you'll find people fellowshipping over coffee. You'll find people fellowshipping over morning prayer. You'll find people fellowshipping. You'll find a place where it's not, we don't come just to work, but we come to fellowship. And as the leader of the organization, I've been very intentional in that because I know that I have a very diverse community. We need to fellowship together to have healthy relationships. So what would it look like to be a devoted to fellowship? Third, they were devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. I appreciate about this church so many things, and one of them that I know this to be a praying church. I know this to be a praying church. We are a praying ministry at Bridge Street Ministries. From the very beginning, the foundation of our ministry, we've been a prayerful community. To this day, we pray every single morning as a team. 9.15, we get together and we pray together. It's a foundation of our team. I know that's a foundation of this. And I want to just encourage you to continue to be devoted to prayer. Now, I made, you know, this, I'm running out of shade here. And I'm, Jake, wherever you are, sorry, man, I'm probably coming up on, I want to finish with four quick things. And these will be quick, and I could go long on each of these, but I'm going to make them quick. As I read through this, again, I don't use this as a description of how we are to organize our church or our communities, but I do find some things that are transferable and marks of the community here. So think about what, is, what are the marks based on Acts chapter 2. What are the marks of a spirit-filled, beloved community? When you think about that, that language, a spirit-filled church, I hear that often. Well, that's a spirit-filled church. And I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear that, a spirit-filled church. Well, this was a spirit-filled church. This is a spirit-filled, beloved community. And what were the marks of this spirit-filled, beloved community? Number one, it was a unified community. It was a unified community. Verse 43, they had all things in common. Now, I don't know exactly what form that took, but it does say clearly they were unified. And this uh, is a theme throughout the rest of the New Testament is being unified. I think about today in the state of the church and how divided the church is. 
and how quickly people will abandon their community because of personal preferences. How much we are, how quick we are to fight to be right rather than to fight to be loving. And now don't get me wrong, there are some things that we need to be right on. There are some hills that we need to be willing to die on. And then there are some that aren't. And here's, the, here's, here's, uh, the, here's something that I think that people don't understand is that you can actually disagree with people and still love them. You can disagree with people and still be in fellowship with them. They, a spirit-filled, beloved community is a unified community. A spirit-filled, unified community or a spirit-filled, beloved community is a generous and compassionate community. Verse 45, they sold and gave to those in need. Now, I want to be clear. This is not a picture of socialism. This is not a picture of capitalism. This is a picture of community. In God's economy, his social construct is built on community and relationships. So what does it mean that they had all things in common? It certainly doesn't mean that everyone had all the same stuff. Everyone had all the same bank account. That's clear in the text here, right? Some people had land, other people didn't have land. But what was clear is that there was this sense that whatever I have is a gift from God, not to be hoarded for my own pleasure, but for the sake of a beloved community. It's to be shared for the sake of a beloved community. A lot more we could say on that. A, a spirit-filled church is a generous and compassionate church. A spirit-filled church is a joyful church. Verse 40, 48, with glad and sincere hearts with glad and sincere hearts. And I think again about how many people today are embittered at the church. They're embittered and angry at the church. Man, what would it look like for the beloved community to be joyful? Where people would come in and in the midst of struggle, in the midst of disagreement, in the midst of challenge, to find a joyful community. And lastly, a spirit-filled, beloved community is a powerful community. It is a powerful community. Verse 43, people were filled with awe. They were filled with awe. I think about today, and I, you know, in my line of work, advocating for her, urban youth in various circles in the city, I can tell you that outside of the church, the church is irrelevant. Perspectively. I'm talking about perspective. And, and I think the church needs to realize this. That outside of the church, the perspective of the church is that we are irrelevant at best and divisive and hurtful at worst. And I think about this early church, and people were in awe. They were in awe. 
people were looking from the outside saying there's something happening in that community that we've never seen before. People are being taken care of. They're joyful. They're unified. There's power happening. People were in awe of that early church. And we're talking about people from the outside looking in saying, I want to be a, whatever's going on there, I want to be a part of that. And friends, that is what I want to be a part of in our day, is a movement that isn't built on social construct. It's not built on church growth models, but it's a spirit, Holy Spirit movement that brings together a beloved community that gains the attention of the world around it where people can say, whatever you have, I want to be a part of that. And my, pray, my prayer for this church is that it would continue to be. And, I, and I, I say this often at this church, and I say it genuinely from my heart. When I look at these marks of a spirit-filled, beloved community, I see those marks at this church. I see a unified church. I see a generous and compassionate church. I see, a, uh, uh, what, was the, what was the third one? Joyful church. And I see a powerful church. I see a powerful church that is attractional to the community around it. So may you, Discovery, continue, as Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, continue to be a spirit-filled, beloved community. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. Thanks for your creation that testifies about your goodness and your favor and your power. Thanks for this beloved community that uh, is filled with your spirit. And I pray, God, that they would not forsake uh, a devotion to your word, that they would not forsake prayer, that would not forsake the fellowship. I pray, God, that you would protect this community from the arguing and the, 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 uh, the bickering and the grumbling that has taken root in so many places in your church. And I pray that this would continue and increasingly be a unified community so that this neighborhood around could look in and say, whatever's happening there, I want to be a part of that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.